Hello and welcome to the Shiloh podcast. I'm Rosie Dawson and this is the podcast where I talk with my guests about rape culture, religion and the Bible. And because we draw the links between ancient text and contemporary experience, these conversations raise disturbing issues and can prompt painful responses. So while we hope you may find the discussions energising and stimulating, there is this content warning too. My guest today is Erica Dunbar, who's joining me from Atlanta. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast, Erica. Do just introduce yourself to us a little, of your work, anything else you'd like to tell us about yourself. Sure. My name is Erica Dunbar, originally from Jacksonville, Florida. I am a Hebrew Bible scholar. I received my PhD from Drew University in May of 2020. And currently I'm serving as a visiting professor of um, Hebrew Bible at Payne Theological Seminary, and that's in Ohio. But you're in Atlanta. Yeah, so everything's done virtually now. <laughs> <laughs> is, is Atlanta your home these days? It is, yes. Yeah. And you're an ordained minister? Yes, I am an ordained minister in the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, have been ordained for several years now, and I do not serve any congregations, but I do serve on on whatever levels the bishop um, asks me to serve on. So tell me about your religious upbringing and uh, how how much the Bible was part of that. Right, so I was raised primarily by my grandmother, uh, my maternal grandmother. She raised uh, myself, four other siblings and two other cousins. So she was a single black woman raising seven grandchildren by herself. And she is a woman of faith She's still living, um, still actively a part of our lives. Uh, She raised us uh, to be people who are active in the church and that take their relationship with God very seriously. And so you grew up with the Bible, with the Bible stories. Do you remember how you engaged with them as a child? Yes. So my grandmother, a part of um, her rearing was to allow us to have these Bible studies at home where she didn't lead the Bible studies, but she allowed us as children to kind of lead and to pick the stories that we wanted to reflect on. And this was reinforced by taking us to Bible study and to church each week. And that was the space that I was enabled to ask some of those questions of the text that um, I didn't always feel empowered to ask in more public settings. Questions such as, um, you know, if no one was there in the beginning, right, who recorded, who was there to know that God created the heavens and the earth and who was there to record it? Um, questions about uh, whose side of the story we're hearing. So those were some of the questions that kind of guided my early, earlier encounters with the Bible. It sounds really lovely that you were sort of sitting there with with the questions and that you were those questions were heard, were they, by the adults around you? Not really the adults, because I was embedded within a class with uh, many of my peers. So people my age that were probably thinking some of the same questions, but never had the um, courage to ask those questions out loud. There was one particular teacher, uh, Mrs. Wyatt, who was an educator. So I think that's probably why she allowed us to ask those questions and to go there with those conversations because had she been, you know, someone else, I I think maybe those questions would have been um, silenced. 
So we're going to be talking about the Book of Esther um, today. Can you remember from that what your first encounter with Esther was and how it, how it was presented to you or how you received it? So I don't remember this first specific encounter that I had with the Book of Esther, but I do remember similar sermons and narratives around that book. And most of those sermons were centered around Esther being this hero that saved her people and um, that we should model our lives off of Esther's life and her actions. And there are two phrases that often come up. And one is for such a time as this. um, And then the other is one night with the king. So I'm sitting with the story and wondering, you know, what is the time is this? You know, what should we be prepared for? So asking questions about what Esther is living through and the conditions around her stepping up as a leader, or at that time, I'm thinking she's stepping up as a leader. But now as I read it in retrospect, I I think that she was pushed to be a leader, which for me is very problematic uh, as a black woman who is often pushed to step up and save one's you know, community. Um, There are a lot of questions and reservations about that particular framing of the story. And the other piece is this celebration one night with the king. So Aretha Franklin and Juanita Bynum, who is a preacher and psalmist, they both sing this song, One Night with the King. It changes everything. You know, one night would change the course of your life. And I'm listening to the lyrics and I'm thinking, yeah, One Night with the King does like grant upward mobility and perhaps like access to political uh, mobility. But there's something happening this one night that we're kind of looking over, glossing over. So we'll we'll talk about all that in a moment. But just um, asking you a little bit about once you got into um, the academy, who were the key influences on you? and How did they influence your journey? So Dr. Randall Bailey was my professor of Hebrew Bible at the Interdenominational Theological Center. And he really helped me to um, see aspects of the text that I had not seen and provided access to resources, different scholars um, that treated the book of Esther. So Randall Bailey is an ideological critic. And what interested me, I think the most, was that he was attention to those ideologies, but he was also attentive to stereotypes and euphemisms, um, which really kind of opened the text up to me in different ways. I also learned my languages, um, Hebrew, with him. And he introduced you to the idea, if not the the word, of intersectionalities. Is that right? That's correct. So he wrote this article. It's um, That's why they didn't call the book Hadassah. Hadassah was another name for Esther. Right. And in this article, he actually treats so many of the topics that um, I then see as working together in this constellation of identity. So he's looking at race and ethnicity. He's looking at geography. He's looking at sex and sexuality. And we had a conversation after I did my dissertation. He said, I laid the the groundwork and I think that this is the greatest impact a mentor can have for his mentee or his or her mentee, that they can lay the groundwork, you know, on which you can build your work. And so it was a proud moment for him, right? Because he enabled me to see those things in a way that produced new knowledge about particularly black women. Okay, so just just tell me what your dissertation was. 
The title of my dissertation is Trafficking Hadassah and Africana Reading of Collective Trauma, Memory, and Identity in the Book of Esther and in the African Diaspora. So I am assessing and analyzing the collective trauma of sexual trafficking in the Book of Esther. I then compare and contrast that to what happened to Africana girls and women during the transatlantic slave trade to show that both contexts are marked by colonialism, by capture, by enslavement, by sexual exploitation and displacement, cultural genocide, and ethnic suppression. So what I'm doing is assessing the conditions and the processes by which the girls and women are trafficked and the traumatic impact of these experiences. We just need to tell the story briefly of um, Esther. So the story begins in the imperial court of King... Is, is it Xerxes? How do you pronounce that X? Xerxes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're told his empire's got 127 provinces. It stretches from India to Susa in the Nile region. And he's hosting a seven-day banquet for all his courtiers from all over his empire. And they're all drinking a lot. And then he commands his eunuchs to go and fetch his queen Vashti so that he can show off her beauty to everyone and she refuses to come. Um, We don't know why, but she's holding a banquet of her own so she might just have been having too much fun perhaps. But everybody's absolutely appalled by the fact that um, she she won't go. And um, the king's advisers, uh, we're told, worry not only about the effect on the king's household of this but on, on the household of every every man in the empire whose, whose wife might um, become a bit... Um, uh, rebellious. Do you just want to take up the story for the next bit? So in the second chapter, once Vashti is deposed, the king's advisors suggest that, that young, beautiful virgins are brought to the king's palace to um, replace her. And they are brought in and there's a beautification process. So um, the girls are subjected to a year long of beautification process. And then each night the girl go in to have um, her one ch- her chance to become a queen, the, the next queen. Um, ultimately, Esther is chosen as queen, and then there's this big banquet that celebrates her. And they, the, the, the girls are all um, staying in a, in a harem, and the beautification processes are, are they really um, explained quite a lot, aren't they, about you know how many months of beautification and the sort of oils and all the rest of it. I mean, it's, uh, it's full-on... Uh, beauty spa treatments. Right. So it's a year long process. So they're brought in to the harem of the the wives and they remain there um, before their one night with the king. But after their one night to the king, then they're shifted to the harem of the um, concubines. And again, this beautification, I think a lot of interpreters kind of focus on beautification and talk about pageantry. But for me, looking at the beautification is kind of being attentive to the role of beautification in preparing one for sexual exploitation. So the story of how Esther becomes queen is that she has her one night with the king and she is the woman out of all these hundreds, thousands maybe of women who are who are brought um, to Susa. Um, and then what happens is that her uncle, Mordecai, who has told her not to reveal that she's Jewish, um, by the way, that's quite important, um, he falls foul of a very powerful courtier called Haman. And Haman takes the very extreme response of not only wanting to kill Mordecai, but to kill all the Jews living throughout this vast empire. But Esther manages to save her people. And can you just tell us briefly how? 
Sure. So her uncle Mordecai comes to her and say, you have to step up, you know, for such a time as this, you have to step up and save us. And he wants her to go to the king, although she knows that it is illegal to approach the king without being summoned. So he's really forcing her to put her life at risk to save, you know, the lives of those in their cultural group. And she, you know, retreats to think about it. And then she chooses to um, approach the king. So she uses um, sex and sexuality to kind of coerce the king to summon her. And then she makes her, you know, petition through these series of banquets. She's um, getting the king kind of softened up through food and through alcohol. And then she kind of outs the plan of Haman. But interesting enough, it's not the plan that Haman has devised that enrages the king, but it's when he perceives that Haman is trying to assault Esther. So I think that's another aspect of the text or what causes, a, you know, what draws this response out of the king. It's not that Esther or the Jews' lives are at stake, but it's that he perceives his property, his wife, is being assaulted. So Haman's plot is foiled. What becomes of the laws that the king had passed to destroy the Jewish people? The laws are irrevocable. He cannot rescind it. So he he gives them the power in order to write their own laws and they write the law that they can defend themselves because the, the, all of the laws are revocable. He cannot change the law. So the end result is, is what? The end result is that the Jews then kill um, Haman, his 10 song sons who are hanged on the gallows, um, and then more than 75,000 people. And then after they're killed, um, they write another edict that they are to celebrate, right? And that's where we have Purim and the celebration. It's a very dramatic story. It's very vividly told within the Bible itself. There's lots of colour and pageantry. Um, There are comedic elements. There is concealed identity. But when you decide that the appropriate genre for this story is horror, what is the principal horror that you have in mind? The principal horror that I identify is the trafficking of the girls in the book of Esther. Traditional interpretations of the book focus on this cultural genocide or the the violence at the end of the book. But what I'm pointing out is that there are multiple instances of violence, multiple instances of trauma, and that we've been taught to read over the sex trafficking of the girls Um, mostly because of the euphemisms and just because a lot of people refuse to either see what's there or refuse to talk about it. And that might be an impact of horror, right? Because it kind of prevents us from talking, articulating what's being experienced. So that's the horror that I hone in on. And it's horrific for me because it's not just here in this sacred story, but because if you are attentive to those geographical locales, they're not just references to um, geographical spaces, but they're references to ethnic identity and they're um, indicators of class. So if you're talking about sex trafficking and African women and Indian women in to the 21st century, those are groups that are continually trafficked at high numbers, you know. In mm. the, the story reminds me of the women of Shiloh in, in Judges who are just sort of kidnapped and taken off to be the wives of the Benjamites. Um, but I mean, here, it's, it's perhaps even um, 
Well, is it more opaque or is it just that we turn a blind eye? And I, I think it's, it's because it's been presented, hasn't it, as this great beauty pageant. It's the most beautiful person who gets to be the queen. So in, 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 it plays into all our sort of, you know, little princess fantasies as little girls, you know, that, that will be the ones who are chosen. So it, is it easy to overlook or would you say it's glaringly obvious, but people just don't see it? I would not say that it's glaringly obvious. I would not say that it's easy to overlook either. I would say that sometimes we make choices to see something. Um, sometimes we can't see something because of those linguistic constructions or those euphemisms. But if we are attentive to, this is why ideology right, becomes important because you just talked about the story of Shiloh. And then you look at the book of Esther and you can think of a few more stories in the Hebrew Bible, particularly Hagar, of women being raped, being exploited. What are the ideologies that underground those experiences? Like, why do we perceive that women are rapable? Why do we perceive that women are property? Um, so that's why that ideological criticism becomes important. I suppose as people sitting in pews or children in Sunday school, we're rarely as you seem to have been actually, but we're rarely just given a story without given the meaning about what, what this was all about. And that's where the ideology comes in. So I suppose that's what makes it so easy to get to adulthood and read it again and think, well, why, why didn't I see this? Yeah, well, I think a, another part, another aspect is lived experience impacts what one sees in the text, right? So if I've lived through this type of trauma or because I'm talking about collective trauma and making this comparison with what happened to Africana girls and women during the transatlantic slave trade, that's an intergenerational trauma that's embedded in my bones, in my body. So as a Africana woman, I could identify that this was sex trafficking, whereas Whereas I'm a, a white Western girl, grew up when Miss World was still on the telly, when they chose who was the most beautiful girl and she cried at the end and she got a crown put on her head. And, and that's the lens through which I would see that story. But as, as a um, black American aware of the enslavement and rape of your ancestors, I mean, did you, did you see that in the story as a, as a teenager? I saw the sex and sexuality. I knew that it was more than a beauty pageant. I knew that there was something harmful was happening. I don't know that I had the words to articulate that this was sex trafficking, maybe rape. That's probably what I labeled it. But I definitely knew that there was more than Esther, that there were multiple women and that they were being harmed. And the question was, why isn't anyone protecting these girls? And why don't we hear their voices? Like, why can't we hear from their perspective what they lived through? So, I mean, clearly now you look at the beauty spas and these were places of grooming. And then when the, the women who weren't chosen, what, what happens to them? So we know that they remain concubines. They are shifted to the um, harem of the concubines. We don't know, you know, what their lives entailed after Esther became queen. But we know that they were imprisoned there. They, they didn't have an option to go back home. They were property of the king to to use at his disposal. And we're talking about young virgins, so we're talking about girls who are ripped away from their families, again, with, with no choice about what, what happens to them. Um, 
when we were uh, doing our research conversation, you you spoke to me about um, downtown Atlanta as one of the um, most concentrated sites for um, sex trafficking in the in the US. How have you been able to dialogue between um, your reading of the Book of Esther and the sex workers and the trafficked women that you've you, that you've engaged with? So that I would have to go back to my time in Gainesville. And I was doing my undergraduate undergraduate work there, and I would often find myself just meeting them wherever they are and having conversations with them about their lives and um, broadly about their lives. I didn't go with this, you know, why are you a sex worker? You know, what are you doing? But I just wanted to hear from them. I wanted to hear their stories and just to learn from them. So with those engagements, I kind of saw the Bible functioning in a different way. I saw sacred texts being expanded. So it wasn't just the words on the paper, but it was the words that I were were hearing from these women. Their lives were sacred texts that I could learn and draw meaning from. So when I got to seminary in Atlanta, I was attending the Interdenominational Theological Center and the seminary is closed off by a gate right from the community in which is in which is embedded and i would see people walking through walking around and i wondered how do these people in this community engage these biblical narratives can they recognize what's happening in the stories do they see themselves in the story do they understand their stories as connected to the stories in the biblical text and then more importantly, or in, I'll just say in addition, in addition, really, additionally, I can't say that I wondered if these sacred texts would help them. I wonder if stories like the Book of Esther would cause more harm than it would good and um, if it would re-traumatize them. So I wondered the impact of sacred stories on people, their identities. Did you discuss the Book of Esther with them at all? Yes, several people, I discussed it, the book of Esther, and they were able to identify that this was not a beauty pageant, that this was actually, you know, sexual exploitation and sexual abuse. And that having those conversations kind of helped me to understand the mechanics of sex trafficking, which is what I kind of outlined in my dissertation. Just just talk a little bit about those mechanics. So, for instance... Migration, the role of migration in sex trafficking, how um, kind of what we talked about, how it's not just about national borders, but how one can migrate from one bedroom to the next bedroom. And that constitutes sex trafficking, um, can constitute sex trafficking, how, again, how beauty and beautification contributes to this act of exploitation, because in the book of Esther, it says that the requirement was that these girls are beautiful, young and virgin. So there was a requirement for beautiful young girls, but beauty isn't enough because then they're subjected to a year long process. So it's not just about beauty and beautification, but this process was about turning them into Persian queens. It was about erasing their ethnic difference, right? Um, It wasn't just about putting on makeup and taking a bath, but it was about transforming them into these Persian queens because this is the Persian empire. You you introduced me to that song, you know, One Night with the King, which Aretha Franklin um, sang, and I, I went away and, and listened to it. And um, the way that the king and God 
somehow get conflated in in that one night with the king can change everything and then the the sort of suggestion in the song is you hand yourself over to god and you know he will change your life yeah and so what happens is often that many readers interpreters hearers conflate god with the king and it inadvertently frames this king as this hostile deity that's abusive this male imperial agent that sexually exploits um females and when I've spoken to persons that have been trafficked and abused, um, they reflect on this conflation of the pimps saying that, you know, why should I um, go to church? Why should I listen to or embrace your message? My pimp says, I am your God. My pimp says, I provide all of your needs. My pimp says, I am your protector. So they have this resistance to God and to pastors and to leader because it feels like they're entering into another exploitative and abusive relationship instead of going to the church and to religious leaders for comfort and peace. They feel that there's the potential for re-traumatization. It's interesting, isn't it, that actually God isn't mentioned at all in the, in the book. How helpful is it for churches to engage with this, do you think? Or how necessary is it for churches to engage with this? I think it's very necessary for churches to engage because we have a moral and ethical responsibility to um, call out those things that are unjust, that are unethical. And we have a moral obligation to resist oppression, marginalization, violence. Um, If we don't take the lead in doing this and calling out these texts that are sacred yet sometimes harmful, then we are failing to live up to our obligations. Um, we can't just do it in the academy. You can't just do it in the streets. We have to have collaboration across these different institutions and contexts. Mm. Are there any tensions for you between um, being an academic and an activist on this issue? No, because my work, my scholarship is a form of activism. So by um, identifying the nameless girls, the faceless girls, those marginalized and minoritized girls, that is what it contributes to the Say Her Name and Me Too movements, which they endeavor to, you know, articulate these stories to resist this type of behavior. So in doing so, I am um, engaging in activist work. There have been feminist readings of the text for quite some time, I think. Um, And uh, I mean, particularly around, you know, Vashti is a sort of a character who just says no and um, sort of can be a sort of a model for people. I mean, um, more recent to me are the sort of womanist readings of the text. Can you talk to me about the importance of those and what 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 the what the white feminist reading doesn't see or or doesn't offer? Right. So I think that polyvocality and the intersectionality are frameworks that really illuminate what is happening in particular to the minoritized girls in the book. So this is not just oppression on the basis of gender, which most of those readings kind of assert. This is oppression on the at the conflation of gender, ethnicity, class, and 
you know, colonial status. These are these girls are colonized by the Persians. So I think the reading, my reading particularly, um, helps us to see that these girls are oppressed on the basis of several aspects of their identity. And then this framework of polyvocality helps us to not focus on the heroine or not pit Vashti and Esther against each other. But I understand Vashti as doing the foundational work and kind of tag teaming her efforts with Esther. So they work together to dismantle patriarchy, colonialism. Um, And I think that we do ourselves a disservice to focus on heroes and not focus on the collectives, right? Um, Because there are collective efforts and we don't work in silos. We don't work by ourselves as individuals. So that's why collective um, identity and collective trauma becomes important and central to my work. You've just spoken about, you know, not wanting the heroes and uh, of the individuals. And so do you feel any personal affinity with Esther or not? I feel a personal affinity with all of the girls that were exploited. I feel more connected to the nameless, faceless, invisible girls um, because we don't know their stories. That even Esther, I want to call her Hadassah. I want to honor her heritage. I want to honor her identity. So yeah, I feel an affinity towards all of them. Vashti, Esther, the nameless girls, even to Haman's wife. You know, she experienced trauma as well. It might not have been sexual or sexualized violence, but to witness your husband and your sons murdered in such a gruesome way, I just connect with them. Oh. So you, you see very clear parallels between the experience of these girls who are trafficked from all over the empire to the king's harem in Susa. You see very clear parallels between that and the transatlantic slave trade and the the capture and deportation and rape of um, enslaved Africans. Yes, I do. Um, so you have these contexts of colonialism um, wherein these patriarchal and male figures assert their power, their privilege to exploit the resources of the colonized. And one of those resources are human bodies, right? Um, because it's, it's, it's important, it's, it's significant that these girls are virgin. They have economic value, right? So it could have been any girl, but they have economic value. And this same is true of women and girls that were brought over during the transatlantic slave trade. They had economic value um, as um, those who would be enslaved and who would work to ensure that the colonizers had access to that which they were exploiting from the native peoples. So there are strong parallels. Um, We just would not name what happened in ancient context. We have not named it as sex trafficking. Um, I don't think I've really read a lot of people that even suggest that the girls are sex slaves, right? Different name, same actions. So I'm just putting a different framework on the story. Have you encountered any pushback to your work? I have. I've encountered a lot of pushback. Um, And one form in particular, I would say, is that there are other girls that are represented in the text 
you know, you have those that are from India. And so are you saying that black women's trauma is more important? And I'm not, that's not what I'm suggesting. In fact, I call out that some of these girls are from India, right? Um, but for me as an Africana biblical interpreter, I am placing the particularities particularities of Africana life history and culture at the center of the interpretive process. Um, we've been mar- marginalized um, even in biblical interpretation. So this is a form of activism as well to say that our lives and our stories matter. Um, and it doesn't minimize or reduce the experiences of others. In fact, I stand as an ally with and call out those atrocities that are perpetuated against them as well. But for my choice, my form of activism is to place the particularities of Africana lives at the center. Oh, it's really interesting. That was the, I, I didn't expect that to be the form of pushback when you said that you'd experienced pushback. You know, I, I thought it, it might be from completely other quarters that's interesting yeah it's also interesting that a lot of white females refuse to see or understand perceive it as sex trafficking um so that that's appalling to me but it is the reality um and i think the thing about interpretation is that we don't have to accept each other's interpretation but at least engage it you know at least seek to understand what someone has to offer about this particular text. And then let's have some conversations around, you know, what we see, what we understand is happening and how we can best extract meaning from this text that will help people to live and thrive. Really, really fascinating. Thank you ever so much for being with me. Um, that's all for this month. Please subscribe to the Shiloh podcast at the Shiloh podcast, all one word, .captivate.fm or from wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends about it. Send us your feedback. Leave a review and let us know if you'd like to contribute to the podcast or who you'd like to hear from in future episodes. Our website is www.shilohproject.blog or if you Google the Shiloh project, it should just come up and you can follow us on Twitter at Proj Shiloh. Thanks again to Erica. Bye-bye.